We're picking up in the book of Ruth, chapter 1, and we are going through the book of Ruth. It will take us longer than the month of December, but I framed it last week in terms of a observance of the advent of Jesus Christ as in the early weeks of December, we reflect on the darkness of the world apart from Christ and as we anticipate his coming and the coming of the light of life who brings life to each of us, as we progress through the book of Ruth, we are moving from a stage of complete darkness in chapter one, verses one through five, and we're going to start to see light progressively shining along the way. And as you see um, hints of hope in the text this morning, I would encourage you to allow that to remind you of the hints of hope that Israel had throughout its history of God's working in their world and in their life and of the hope that it was pointing to, which is the hope of Jesus Christ. So we've sung of Jesus Christ, our only hope, our, our, the one who's pleading on our behalf. And while we walk through this Advent season that culminates on Christmas Day, I want to encourage you to keep doing so as Christians, to think of this time not as a time that we reflect on ourselves alone or on what we might receive as we open presents underneath the tree on Christmas Day, but on the ultimate gift of Jesus that humanity has been longing for since really the the first fall of man and and woman into sin as they disobeyed the Lord. So we'll turn our attention here to Ruth as we seek to do this. And I want to remind you of the covenantal context for the book of Ruth. I framed this last week by looking at Deuteronomy 7 and 8 and wanted to remind you that if Israel kept the covenant obligations and maintained faithfulness and steadfast love with God, that they would partake in the blessings of the covenant. Uh, Brian read of this where it started with Abraham in Genesis 12, where those who would bless Abraham and his seed would be blessed and those who would curse Abraham and his seed would be cursed. Well, that seed now is brought forth in Israel, God's firstborn son, and those who would bless Israel would be blessed and those who curse Israel would be cursed. And within Israel, those who maintain faithfulness to Yahweh would receive the blessings of the covenant and those who failed to would receive the cursings when they broke the stipulations of the covenant. So we read in texts like Deuteronomy 6, verses 10 and 12, when the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that he would give you a land with large and beautiful cities that you did not build, houses full of every good thing that you did not fill them with, cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. And when you eat and are satisfied, be careful not to forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. And what we have in these covenant stipulations are really these um, obligations that Israel was taking on to say, Yahweh, you alone are our God, and we will live in faithfulness before you, and we will treat our fellow Israelite as you have treated us. And we will not stray into idolatry. We will not worship false gods. And, And if they did, Yahweh, the God of the covenant, would visit the curses of the covenant upon them. Now, there are two items that I want to note here so that we hear the book of Ruth rightly. The first item is that we can be misled as we're talking about covenant obligations and stipulations and blessings and cursings to think that covenant faithfulness only entails 
keeping the direct stipulations of the covenant. But I want to suggest that covenant faithfulness and steadfast love actually brings on greater responsibility than the things that are outlined in the law of the old covenant or in the stipulations of the old covenant. And a way for us to analogize this is in our marriage vows. We take on certain covenant obligations that are spelled out. Now, I don't know if some of you wrote your own vows or not, or if you use, you know, the prefab historic vows. I think that's what my wife and I did. There are only a certain number of things listed in those vows. And if you wrote your own, you might have highlighted a few other particular features that you wanted to include in there. But your marriage covenant, faithfulness to that covenant includes more than reading your vows every day, and at the end of the day, checking off the box that you did the wording of that vow. Covenant faithfulness demands more. It demands all of you. It demands wholehearted commitment to one another. And that's what the law is trying to bring out of Israel, a wholehearted commitment to God. Now, the Ten Commandments in particular are these covenant stipulations for the old covenant. But the, the responsibilities incumbent on them goes beyond the Ten Commandments and, and beyond the application of the Ten Commandments in the rest of the law that we read in books like Numbers and Deuteronomy. Okay, so covenant faithfulness to God includes obedience to the law, but covenant faithfulness in this relationship goes beyond simply the letter of the law to the spirit of the law. And we understand Christ to speak of this more. Uh, but I want you to understand that it's not just a mathematical equation such that if you do what's right, then good things happen. And if you do what's bad, bad things happen. That's why we're given books like Proverbs and Psalms that talk about God you know, bringing rain on the crops of both the just and the unjust. There are ways that God's common grace favors even those who reject him. And, and sometimes the, the famine comes on the just and the unjust. And so when we talk about a famine in Israel, there may have been individuals who were living in faithfulness before God, but they as a nation were being dealt with. Okay, but it's beyond a mathematical equation. It's, we need to think of it in terms of a covenantal relationship, not a contract. All right, so that's one item that I want to draw your attention to. The second item I want to draw your attention to is brought up in Deuteronomy 6, 12, where, where what I read earlier, where the Lord says, be careful not to forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. I think sometimes we can read books in the Old Testament and understand the relationships in the Old Covenant to be relationships that emphasize work and law, and, and we might even be so, you know, misled to believe that there's an earning of God's favor and of God's covenantal faithfulness and steadfast love. The reality is the law and the old covenant was given based on God graciously bringing Israel out of Egypt and delivering them. So even the old covenant is a covenant of grace. It's God's gracious dealing with humanity. And, and it's based in God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 and in Genesis 15, where God tells him, I will be faithful to you and I will deal with you in love, but know that your offspring will be in Egypt for 400 plus years and then I will bring them out. So the, the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, sometimes we call it the Sinaitic covenant, um, is based on God's promises to Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant. 
and God will root his demands of Israel on his grace in bringing them out of Egypt. And that grace in bringing them out of Egypt is just part of his grace to Abraham. Because God called Abraham out of the land of his fathers and demanded nothing of Abraham other than to come and and go where I will tell you and go to the land that I will give you. So the Abrahamic covenant is colored with God's grace and the old covenant is colored with God's grace. So don't think in terms of mathematical formulas or earning God's favor or something like that. Know that God's favor, his hesed, that's the word that we've talked about a lot in our Bible class, his covenant faithfulness and steadfast love was displayed prior to any human doing anything that would earn that covenant faithfulness and steadfast love. This is important in the book of Ruth because when we come across these ideas of famine and some of these other things, we need to understand that God's faithfulness to his covenant includes faithfulness to bring about the the curses of the covenant. And so if Israel would take on other gods and reject Yahweh, he would visit them with hunger so that they would be humbled and they turn from their false gods and they turn to Yahweh. And so even these harsh dealings with Israel, we need to understand in terms of a loving father dealing with a wayward firstborn son and in the discipline is intended to draw them back so that they might be restored and they might experience life and the blessings of the covenant. So when a famine comes to Israel, now this is old covenant. We're not in the old covenant. So don't think in terms of the here, you know, if, if, we'll get to this later, but when there's a famine, Israel needed to repent. Well, we observed a family, instead of repenting, responding to the discipline that's intended to bring life, we see this family running from the Lord and going out of the promised land into a self-imposed exile, into the land of Moab, into the fields of Moab, where they have been denied bread in their national history, where they've been denied food, and where they are entering into relationships with people who are recognizing a different God. The Moabites recognize the God Kamosh, this, this false God, so that this family has left the land. They've left the God of the land, in a sense, by leaving his territory. Now, we know God is the God of the world, but in, in the thinking of that day, th- these Moabites would have seen these people coming under the protection of their God and the provision of their God in their land. And so what we've observed is the darkest time in this family's life. And it gets darker as Elimelech, this guy who's named God is my king, as he dies. And then his two sons take Moabite wives. This is expressly permitted by the Lord in the covenant stipulations. But they take these wives anyway, and then they die. And Ruth and Orpah, these two Moabite women, Um, are left along with Naomi, their mother-in-law. And that's where we ended the story. And I wanted to suggest to you that what's being done is bringing Naomi as the central figure of the story. Everyone's talked about in relationship to her. And I think in a way, uh, the, the way that God beautifully uses events in history and the lives of people to symbolize other things, I think Naomi stands for Israel as a picture of themselves in exile. So Naomi is on her own out of the land 
And in this story, we are looking for Naomi to return to the land and to Yahweh and to return to covenant faithfulness to him. And in that way, she is an example of Israel so often in Israel's history when they are outside of the land, when they have failed to look to God for provision and where they have failed to repent for their sin. That's where we're left in the story. And it's a really, really dark time. And we now are entering into the next scenes and we anticipate, if we're first readers of the story, we're anticipating Naomi being in a spot where she's going to choose either to return to Yahweh or to maintain her, her lack of repentance. And then we expect in response either life or death to follow if we're looking at this in the barest of terms. Now, there's more going on there than that, as we'll see. But we are wondering what is going to happen to Naomi. How is Yahweh, how's the Lord going to deal with her? So in Ruth 1.6, we enter into this new um, scene where she, where Naomi and her daughters-in-law set out to return from the territory of Moab. Okay, now, so right away, we think something good is happening here. Um, not only is Naomi returning, her daughters-in-law are returning and perhaps this is like what we've seen Israel do at times where they return to the land after exile. And as they begin to witness the rule of God to the nations once again. So this Israelite woman and her daughters-in-law are returning from the territory of Moab. And this is why. Because she heard in Moab that the Lord had paid attention to his people's need by providing them with food. Okay, so this the word that's translated pay attention here is just a verb that, you know, could be translated as coming to look at or see. But very often in the Old Testament, this word is translated as to visit. In, in other translations that you'll look at, will say that the Lord visited his people and provided them with food. Okay. The idea is that when the famine was there, that famine was an indication that God's presence had left his people and had left the land. And now in the bringing of food, the, the covenantal Lord was visiting his people once again. He was bringing his presence to them once again. Now we should assume then that Israel is at a time in the ruling of the judges where they have repented as a nation and God has responded in covenant faithfulness to visit them. They've been humbled and now he's bringing bread to them. Now, this visitation of Yahweh, of the covenant Lord, is sometimes really, really positive, as it is in this case, as it was in Genesis 21, where this same Lord visited Sarah and did for her what, she prom what he had promised, and she was able to give birth to Isaac. But in other times, it's, it's when God is faithful to visit the cursings of the covenant on individuals, as in Exodus 25 and 34, 7, where he visits, you know, judgment for the iniquity of sin. But here he's visiting them in mercy and grace, and he's showing that he is true to the covenant. Now we can assume that Israel's repented, but what I want to draw your attention to is the fact that Naomi did not leave the land of Moab to return to Israel because her husband and her sons had died and because she was humbled by the discipline of Yahweh, but because she had heard that there's now food in the land. What this is going to show us down the road is that God's kindness 
often has impact on people who have done nothing to show that they deserve God's kindness and that God's kindness has implications and and has impact on individuals who have done nothing to repent and return to the Lord. Naomi is going to be able to partake of God's blessing and of his presence and his feeding, as we will see down the road, in a way that has nothing to do with her righteousness. And it has nothing to do with the righteousness of her daughters-in-law. And it has everything to do with God's consistent, gracious interaction with his people. The nation of Israel, when they were in bondage in Egypt, did nothing there that would bring God's kind presence to them. And Abraham, when he was in the land of his fathers, and as we learn elsewhere, his family, they were probably moon worshipers. There's this family not even worshiping God, but over and over again, God visits people with grace and kindness. And the way I think that we ought to respond to that is that every one of us know God and believe in Jesus, not because of anything that we've done, but because God was at work acting in faithfulness and steadfast love with humanity long before us, and that we have been graciously included in recipients of his kindness and grace. So before we know anything else about Naomi, what we know is that she's not returning to the land because she is learning from the discipline of the Lord, but because she's sensing his grace there already. And maybe she's going with mixed uh, motivation. We don't know. But what we do know is that God is kind. He's kind to his people. And that kindness will have implications even for those who have failed to repent and turn to him. Okay. So we've, we see them returning to the land of Israel because the Lord paid attention to his people's need by providing them for food. Then verse seven, she left the place where she had been living, accompanied by her two daughters-in-law and traveled along the road leading back to the land of Judah. And we're hopeful that as she's returning to the land, she's also going to return to the Lord of the land, the God of the land. Uh, we, we need to recognize that we don't know a lot of what was going on in Naomi's life and family. For all we know, um, Naomi and her family had adopted into their worship Kamosh, the god of the Moabites. You know, we, we know that these women married into an Israelite family, but we have no indication of whether or not they received Yahweh alone as their god. I think it's likely that they just added Yahweh to their pagan worship and ideas. I think this idea of, of God's governing territories and then trying to expand to other territories was very strongly and deeply held. And so I don't think we should look at either Naomi or her daughters-in-law as having um, a belief in or a uh, commitment to the God of Israel alone. I think what we have here is a mixed idolatrous family on their way back to Judah. And we hope that they will come to reject all other gods except for Yahweh, but we don't know that that's the case. If anything, we need to assume that's not the case. All right? So they, they're on their way, and I don't know how far along they got on the road. Hopefully not too far, but somewhere along the way, in verse 8, Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, each of you go back to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness, and that's the word said. Covenant faithfulness and steadfast love. That's the idea here. May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to the dead and to me. May the Lord grant each of you rest in the house of a new husband. 
She kissed them and they wept loudly. I'm going to suggest to you that this is a lower level now for Naomi than what she's had up to this point. As an Israelite, she is tasked with the responsibility of declaring that the God of Israel is the God of the world. And on her way back with her daughters-in-law, she's suggesting that it would be better for them to return to the land of Moab and find rest in the home of a Moabite husband and, and that God would deal more kindly with them in Moab than he would if they returned and they assimilated themselves into the land of Israel. Naomi is supposed to serve as a witness to the nations, and she's serving now as a discouragement to the nations to enter into the blessings of the Lord. Now, there might be a grain of truth or a grain of um, hopefulness in this wording of her hoping that the Lord would show the steadfast love to them as they've shown to the dead and, and to herself. But this is, I think, an all-time low for Naomi. She's returning to the land, not as one who really believes that Yahweh is kind, not as one who really believes that all people need to find their hope in this God, but as one who's suggesting that there's rest and hope in the land of Moab, in the land of Kamosh, that would be better for these two women than in the land of Yahweh. I think it's also important to note that she is having as the standard of the kindness that the Lord would show, the standard is the kindness that Orpah and Ruth have shown. I think everywhere else that we read in the Bible, we understand that our acts of kindness and steadfast love ought to be based on Yahweh, the God of the Bible's kindness and steadfast love and bringing them out of Egypt and every, everything else. But here, the, the standard of what would be a right act of kindness is not Yahweh himself, but it's these two women. And so I think Ru or Naomi has a view of the Lord here. She's bitter towards the Lord, and she wants him to act as kind as these two Moabite women have acted. And that's her standard for, for what good is in this world. The other thing I want to draw your attention to is a theme that's being introduced here, and it's the theme of rest. Naomi asks, may the Lord grant each of you rest in the house of a new husband. Well, on one level, this is normal and right for her to say. The, the way that a woman would find rest and protection and safety would be in the home of a husband. But for an Israelite to suggest that that rest would be found in the home of a Moabite husband ignores the Sabbath rest that God has been giving to his people from creation on. Genuine rest is to be found in the Lord alone. And I think it's ironic then that the best hope of rest for these individuals is in the home of a Moabite idolatrous husband. It's not going to be in the land of Israel, in Naomi's perception. So I think we should look at Naomi's words with, critically. She, she's not speaking according to God's faithfulness that he's shown everywhere. She's speaking according to the bitterness in her heart in discerning the discipline of God as evil against her rather than as something that's intended to lead her to repentance. And in so doing, she's guiding others to reject what that discipline was intended to lead her toward. Rest in God, rest in the land, rest in God's promises. 
And I think the way that we need to respond to this is by realizing that each of us are inclined to do the exact same thing. We're inclined to see God's discipline in our life as something that draws us away from him and that causes us to relate to him in bitterness rather than to relate to him in repentance and confession. That's what God's discipline is intended to do. And if as you are experiencing hardships in your life, I mean, we're, we're not in this old, old covenant context. And so it's not as easy to correlate hard things in our life to, you know, uh, an act that we've had of unfaithfulness to God. But I think we are intended to, to attribute every hardship in our life, regardless of the cause, to the kindness of God in disciplining us to remind us that we are not God and to draw us closer in our confidence in him and in our dependence on him. This is how the New Testament talks about trials and hardships. And I think if you're like me, we, we tend to look at hardship as something that evidences that God isn't there and can't be trusted rather than as something that's intended to draw us closer to him. And the right response for us when we're going through hardship is to turn to the Lord and to confess to him, we are not God and we need you. And we're prone to forget that we need you. And we're prone to rely on ourselves in the things of this world. And we need to repent of that. And we need to look on you as the answer to all of our problems. We need to work hard. We need to strategize. We need to press forward in overcoming these trials. But all of that work is in vain unless it's God working through us. And so we need to say, I'm not God, you're God. Forgive me for thinking that I can live without a thought of you. Forgive me for being the kind of guy who says, tomorrow I will go into town and get gain and do such and such and forget that tomorrow I might die. And, and that the hardships in life are just manifestations of death. And, and we need the life that comes only through God in Jesus Christ and that great resurrection power of the Lord. So when we look at Naomi, she is a model of someone responding with bitterness rather than dependence on the Lord. Now, the flip side of that is also true. When, when good things are going on in our life, we are also inclined to think, um, God's happy, everything's going well in my life, um, and it's, you know, maybe I don't really even need God. I've got a full bank account. I've got everything going on that I need. Um, I'm, I'm a forgetter of God just as much when hardships come as when blessings come. And you and I need to work hard to calibrate our hearts, to see with eyes of faith, to see the God who is at work in every aspect of our lives. We are in a world that's inundated with naturalistic philosophy, saying that there's nothing beyond the material world. And so when bad things happen or good things happen, it's just a virtue of, of what we've done in this world. Well, I want to suggest that God is, has a hand in everything that happens in this world. So whether it's his, his discipline or his kindness, it's meant to draw us to him. Paul teaches us this in Romans 2, 3 through 10, when he writes, do you think any of one of you who judges that those who do such things yet do the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint and patient, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? 
But because of your hardened and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. I think we are all like Naomi, where we take God's kindness for granted and we take his discipline as as something that engenders bitterness. And all the while, our hearts are being hardened and we are storing up God's wrath through the day of judgment. And so instead of living as godless people, we must turn to Christ who took that judgment for us. And the story of Naomi reminds us of who we are. Let's, let's move forward, though. They said to her, verse 10, we insist on returning with you to your people. So in this way, these Moabite women are operating um, with more faithfulness and love to Naomi than she is to them. But then Naomi replied, return home, my daughters. Why do you want to go with me? Am I able to have any more sons who could become your husband's? Return home, my daughters. Go on, for I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me to have a husband tonight and to bear sons, would you be willing to wait for them to grow up? Would you restrain yourself from remarrying? No, my daughters. My life is too bitter for you to share because the Lord's hand has turned against me. So this confirms our view of Naomi as a bitter lady who's seen herself with a grain of truth. God's hand has turned against covenant breakers. But she doesn't go beyond that to say, God's hand will turn to me in kindness. And he's proved it already by visiting Israel with food. He'll do that for me. You can enter into my life and enter not into bitterness, but enter into blessing. Well, she's controlled by this inclination towards bitterness. And she's just suggesting to them, I'm too old to have sons. You know, this is referencing the Israelite leveret marriage law where, um, you know, a relative would uh, marry this widow and there would, the firstborn son would be the inheritor of the, the dead guy. But what she was trying to tell them is, you're, you're saying you want to come with me because you love me. That's nice, but um, for us to maintain this mother-in-law, daughter-in-law relationship, You would need to marry my sons, and I'm too old to have sons. So even if you came back to Israel with me, you would marry someone else, and now your family allegiance would be shifted to that guy's mother. You know, you'd have a new mother-in-law. So what I'm telling you is you you love me, that's good, but there's no way that we stay together anyway because you guys aren't willing to go unmarried because that's how a woman will find safety and protection and provision. So it's better for you to go back to the home of your true mothers, stay there for a time, and then marry someone else who will give you rest. Uh, our relationship is, it, there's, there's a deadline on it regardless because you're going to get married. You're not willing to remain unmarried. So then... In response, they wept again loudly, verse 14, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. When Ruth clings to Naomi, and we'll, we'll look at this next week, this covenantal pledge that, that Ruth makes, Ruth is saying to Naomi, you think that I wouldn't be willing to wait even for your sons to get, grow up? Well, guess what? I'm not going to look for another husband. I'm going to commit to you until the day you die and I am going to care for you and I'm going to love you and I'm going to provide for you and I'm returning to the land with you. 
So this is a sacrificial act. Now, I, I'll say this, that modern interpreters who have looked at human relationships only in terms of sexual expression distort what's going on here into some sort of homosexual relationship that's being proposed here. And, and that's a wrong way to look at it. And I think when we hear commentators and some preachers preaching the text in that way, it should just remind us that humans have such a inclination towards covenant breaking and such a failure to understand the, the intimacy and death, depth of friendship and relationship that God intended us to have, that the only category that it fits into now is a sexual relationship category when people in our culture look on it. Well, God intends for us to have deep relationships that to this modern world sounds like it can only deal with romance and sexuality, when in reality, it just has to do with faithfulness and steadfast love that God intended for us to have with one another. We'll see this next week as we look at that covenant pledge. But if you hear others talking about this text in that way or others in the Bible like David and Jonathan or, or others, I think we need to just say you are missing out on the true friendship that God gives between men and men and women and women. And we shouldn't be embarrassed to have close relationships with people. God created us for that. And there's a right way to do that. And, and, Ruth will picture that down the road. Orpah, however, kissed her mother-in-law and she returned. And we find out later she returned to her land and to the God, her gods, right? And this fits with her name. It's, her name is, means something like nape or back of neck. And it, you know, she just turned around. Now, it's hard to know what to do with Orpah. Her mother-in-law has twice appealed to her in the strongest of terms, go back home and she went back home. So what should we think of Orpah? Well, readers of the Bible have wondered about this for a long time, and they've come up with different ideas about how we should understand Orpah. Because on the one hand, she's just acting naturally, doing what anyone would have done. In fact, she showed the kind of faithfulness that resisted a first call to return. She had already set out on the journey. Uh, but, but on the other hand, Orpah serves as a foil for Ruth. So in literature, foil is just two characters that are contrasted with one another. And so Orpah is contrasted with Ruth, where one goes back home and, and one goes into the land of the Lord. Well, what do we do with her? Well, there, there are some interesting rabbinic, you know, Jewish traditions that talk about this. And there's one in particular that I find interesting. And that is one where the Lord looked on Orpah in sort of a, saying the same thing we're saying. She did what anyone else would do, but she probably should have gone with Naomi still. And so God blessed her according to this tradition. Let me pause and say, this is all speculation. It's not real. It's just the way people have received this text and tried to think about Orpah. And I think it's helpful. They, they, there's this legend that Orpah was blessed by God with children uh, because of the kindness she had showed to Elimelech and to Malon and Kilion and Naomi. And so she had children as God's blessing, I think four or five of them, uh, but they were giants. And one of them was Goliath. And so later on, the, the offspring of Orpah is defeated by the offspring of Ruth. And what that is indicating to us is this, uh, this deep, um, this deep thread in the Bible of the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, 
where, where the seed of the woman enters into the work of God and his redemptive working in the world and the seed of the serpent gets crushed by the seed of the woman. Okay, and, and Goliath is talked about with scaly armor and these sorts of things. So a lot of uh, scholars connect Goliath as a, as a seed of the serpent figure. He's in scaly armor and he gets crushed in the head with a stone from the, the forthcoming king of Israel. Now, this is speculation and in just a tradition that tries to help us understand Orpah. But what I think it's setting us up to do is understand that God is at work in people. And we have a decision before us to respond to God's work or to reject his work. And throughout the Old Testament, as we see individuals rejecting his work and his kindness and his faithfulness, they eventually become identified with the seed of the serpent who will be crushed by the seed of the woman rather than as the offspring of the woman who crushes the seed of the serpent acting on God's behalf in a way. And, and then what happens in the end to each of these individuals is that they get written out of God's story completely. We will never again, after this, encounter Orpah in the book of Ruth. She's completely written out of God's story. And it's an interesting thought experiment to try to imagine what it would have been like for Orpah if she too had said, no, I am going with you. She's written out of God's story. And I think the way that we should process this and connect ourselves to this story is that we are following in this long line of individuals who have a decision to respond to God's faithfulness and steadfast love with reciprocation or with refusal to reciprocate. And in that way, we play out the role of Ruth and Orpah. The, of the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent in our daily lives. And ultimately, we recognize that it's only Jesus Christ who plays out this role perfectly. And in fact, he is the one who on the cross crushes the serpent decisively. Victory is accomplished. And so while we, uh, we are here, we recognize Christ accomplished that victory. But when snakes are killed, they continue to writhe and they're still dangerous because if you pick up a dead snake, it still might bite you. And we are engaging in the footsteps of Christ in a sense, in this uh, dynamic of the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And as we respond to God's faithfulness and steadfast love, and as we crush the sin in our life and act as agents of God in this world, we do our part in crushing the already dead but still writhing serpent. This is why in Romans 16, 20, Paul writes to this church and says that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. God is at work in his people to bring them to respond to his kindness and steadfast love in ways that demonstrate that kindness and steadfast love to others, just as Ruth is doing to Naomi, and to do that to the Lord himself, to respond to him in confession and repentance and in faithful living. We have to end here. But I think that as we look at these things and as we think of the season that we're in, in Advent, and we think of the Christ who comes as the seed of the woman, as the offspring of the woman. Read this week, I think it's Revelation 12, I think where where the woman is giving birth and there's the dragon waiting to swallow him up. Think about Christmas in these terms. 
as the seed of the woman who is coming to crush the seed of the serpent so that you can crush that seed of the serpent as well. And so that you can look to this future day of the new creation where we will dwell with God in covenant faithfulness and steadfast love while he will pour that out on us in a new earth where his presence will dwell among us forevermore. So we long for the day that Christ returns. And as we do that in these moments, as we go to the Lord's table, as we partake of the bread that represents Christ's body and of the the wine that represents Christ's blood, we remember the final seed of the woman who crushed this serpent forever. 